The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Squeeze panellists, Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr Tony Matthews from the School of Environment at Griffith University, both are urban planners. Today we rock, gentlemen. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Let's man. do it. That sounds good. <laughs> Bring it on. Uh, music, matter of my own heart. I enjoy my music. I enjoy the live music experience, but it's not a topic that's without its challenges in terms of the, of, of the conflict between urban particularly residential development uh, and the cultural needs and wants of, of any given urban area as well. Um, where to begin? Wow, that's a great question. Well, we've just been chatting today about this, haven't we, Tony? We thought we might start with the idea of a music city, mm. which has become bigger the last two to five years. Or Seriously. So. Yeah, Seriously. We, we started looking at that term. Uh, what does it mean and what marks a music city and what does what does it bring to bear? And from what I could find out in my, my research, uh, a music city is uh, purely based on the number of live music venues there. If you have enough live music venues, you are considered a music, a music city. city. So I've crunched the numbers uh, <laughs> looking at the, um, I've taken Jason's lead here, crunching numbers, um, looking at some of the, 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 the bigger successful international music cities, including one of our own, not Gold Coast, sadly, but Melbourne, um, mm. also Austin, Texas, uh, places like Berlin, um, surprisingly, some far-flung spots like Reykjavik in Iceland. Reykjavik, yeah. yeah. Adelaide even comes up on this radar as well as a music. Adelaide, yep, rarely features yeah, on anything like why Adelaide, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, yep. uh, Radelaide. Radelaide, yes. Um, and based on uh, a simple uh, division, I worked out that it takes about one live music venue per ten thousand population for you to be considered a music city. So if you look at somewhere like Austin, Texas, which consider, considers itself to be the number one music city internationally, their population is about 3.5 million. They've uh, somewhere in the region of 230 live music venues. Wow. So uh, Melbourne, population 4 million uh, live music venues, somewhere around 470. So I took a middle ground between the two and I reckon about one live music venue per 10K, which would 10K population, which means we need 55 on the Gold Coast, uh, which we don't have. But, you know, there's some trend, there's some kind of flow on impacts here as well, right? So yeah. it's not just the kind of number of venues, but in doing this research and crunching the numbers, Nashville, for example, purportedly generates 56,000 jobs from its music industry and delivering 5.5 billion in revenue per annum. Melbourne, 116,000 jobs, a billion per annum. Montreal has 30 venues in one square kilometre that's become renowned for. Again, you know... Like a music hub. Almost, like a, a music hub, a music cluster. Right? Yeah, right. I like that idea of a music cluster. It's like a festival that's always there, a permanent festival. What about transient uh, developments like festivals, which are usually on the fringe of cities and urban developments, it's fair to say, but things like the Broad Beach Music Festival, or the Jazz Festival, Country Festival as well, these kinds of events are not permanent by any stretch. But how many can you sort of pump into a city before it's uh, it's just too overwhelming? Lots, apparently. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we again, we crunched some numbers. Coachella uh, supposedly generates about $47.3 million in income. Uh, Burning Man, $25 million for the festival. Uh, and they can attract anywhere between 
10,000 and 100,000 people uh, coming to these festivals. And if you listen to Triple J's lineup for this kind of uh, festival round of summer, it's huge. Yeah. Uh, laneway festivals, this kind of stuff, they're, they're becoming a real thing, aren't they, Tony? Well, yes, yes. and But it depends on the festival and its size and where it takes place. Um, so something like Blues on Broad Beach was worth 20 million to the local economy. Uh, most recently, uh, but if you look at something like Splendor down in Byron Bay or the Blues Fest, they actually take place outside town. So any money that they generate is generally not really spent in town, and that's a bit of a problem. So yes, and Jason right. mentioned Burning Man and Coachella in the US, and it's just sort of the same thing there. They almost become like in temporary cities in themselves, and most of right. the most of the economic activity associated with the festival then is spent within the bounds of of that temporary uh, settlement. And and so the the flow through financially to the local economy is not always that great, and you you can. I mean, you talk to people down in Byron and a lot of them are actually very resentful of the big festivals because it just drags people through the place for a weekend. They don't spend anything. They clog up the um, the road network. They cause mayhem. You know, they're up all night and, and, and the local economy doesn't necessarily see the dollars that come from it, but the promoters do. Yes, yes. 91.7 ABC Gold Coast, the Urban Squeeze, talking uh, music today and it's relevant to, uh, to urban developments, to cities. Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr. Tony Matthews with me, Matt Webber, the interface between uh, music and uh, in residence is always a hot topic dare I say a push button topic particularly here on the coast we've seen plenty of venues recently in this uh, uh, slanging match between residence groups between uh, uh, strata title owners specifically um, venues being crowded in by development noise levels you, you, you know turn a, a bass drum a, a bass guitar over one on your amplifier and all of a sudden uh, people start jumping up and down Plenty of people say, well, if you move to an area where there is music, then you suffer the consequences of the choices you make. But it doesn't always work out that way. No, and you've really pointed to a, a good issue here. Maybe there's a couple of things we could talk about. The first is just these sort of background noise levels and what they might be and mm. designing for that and a kind of culture around noise and how that might be changing in cities. And then secondly, whether innovation's occurring in some cities with responding to that and doing things a bit differently. So just to give listeners a bit of background, a quiet room is about 20 to 30 decibels in ambient noise. 20 to 30. Yep. A regular street, about 35 to 45 decibels. A busy office, up to 60 decibels. A lawnmower from about 50 metres away is around 70 decibels. And then if we look at this in terms of music, piped restaurant music is in that 65 decibel range. Um, Soloists or duoists, 85 to 105 decibels and a small rock band 120 decibels and above which is about the same as what uh, aircraft noise is planning for uh, in some of the approaches and takeoff areas and airports so So conflict 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 sirens are going off conflict yeah and you know as density increases we've been talking about this on the show australia's got this kind of culture of being outside and outdoors you've got beautiful weather but people are not adapting to noise so someone downstairs cranks the stereo at two o'clock in the morning having a few drinks loves life upstairs people are going nuts yeah um, yeah so tiny yeah i mean that that's certainly that that does happen that's a case that's something to be aware of but probably a bigger problem is is the idea of gentrification so what you get in an area for example is you might have an area that's not really doing much it's a bit run down so musicians yep. other creatives they move in there they start various different enterprises a couple of live music venues open up 
people start to pay attention, a bit of a scene begins to form, eventually the developers move in, they start building apartments, those apartments get sold to a particular type of individual generally who wants to live in the area but then complains that it's noisy on a Tuesday and they have work on Wednesday night. So you get this sort of nimbyism from the very people that were attracted there in the first instance. Nimbyism, points for the use of the term nimbyism. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Gold star for you, uh, Tony Matthews. But the, um, uh, the, how can you overcome that problem from the outset? What solutions are there? I mean, your accent betrays you. You've got some Irish heritage. Dublin has sort of entertainment precincts, I suppose, that are, you know what you get if you move into certain elements of Dublin city. It's going to be noisy around the clock. Irish cities are pretty noisy generally, and we do, we're fairly musical people, yes. so you're not going to get much sympathy if you're complaining about noise from music. In fact, Irish cities are very musical. You know, so there's, there's a cultural overlay. Oh, big play. time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even walking down the street, I mean, Cork, where I'm from, which I, I mentioned once in a while, um, it's just an incredibly musical city, and there's buskers everywhere, there's live music venues everywhere, there is music everywhere, and it is mostly unregulated. Um, I mean, obviously, the live music venues are regulated in their own way, but buskers and things like that are not. And I was just saying to Jason when we were sitting and waiting to come on, probably the greatest ever live music venue in my hometown in Cork was a place called the Lobby Bar. Very, very small. Probably took maybe a hundred people at a at an absolute squeeze, maybe a hundred people uh, upstairs in the music space. And they operated very successfully for years and eventually they fell foul of the fire officer. Um, and the cost of rehabilitating the venue in order to make it fire compliant was too much for them and they closed down. So okay. uh, that was that was unusual. That probably wouldn't be allowed to happen here where fire eggs are, are tend to be a little bit more enforced here. Um, but Melbourne has a really good, yeah. J Jason will tell you about this, Melbourne has a really good attitude towards managing this which came first question. So planning, you know, planning can play a major role here. And Melbourne's idea is this, what they call this agent of change principle. Sounds very Sounds sexy already, already yeah. yeah. And what, what the idea is, is that let's say a, a music venue exists and a developer comes along, finds some land next door, maybe it's on the perimeter of a light industrial area or something, builds an apartment building. Well, why should the music venue have to close down because the developer's gone in and built apartments, right? Mm. So they say, well, the onus in that case is on the developer. They have to soundproof the building. The residents should be aware of this when they move in, that it's next to a music venue. Protect the music venue, given the revenue that, that it generates and the contribution to culture. The developer responds. If it's the other way around, if the residents are there and the develop and a music venue is opened up, then the onus is on the music venue to do the soundproof. Is there an overarching zoning issue here? Though? Are we talking about specific parts of a city or is this just anywhere? This is just anywhere from what I can tell. But the Gold Coast is responding by beginning to look at the, what it calls a contemporary music plan um, due out this year. And they've got a live music strategy that's part of that. And the idea there is you kind of cluster music venues. Um, you then start to get planners together with regulators, with fire people, uh, with um, liquor licensing people, this kind of stuff around the table and begin to have these conversations about how you can enable both to occur. Because they're not mutually exclusive, right, Tony? No, they're not. Um, but then you, you look at a policy like this, which has been activated in somewhere like, say, Brisbane, for example, in, in Fortitude Valley, which clusters a lot of its live music, uh, or has traditionally done that, clustered a lot of its live music venues in that area. And in the last five years, density has come to the valley in a crazy way and there's apartments springing up everywhere and the people that move there move there because they want to live in the valley and many of them then as soon as they get there they, they revert back to that kind of oh hang on wait now a minute I paid 600k yeah. for this apartment I deserve to get my sleep it's like well what attracted you here in the first instance did you not think about this so I sort of side with the Melbourne you know it's it's a 
possession is nine-tenths of the law as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> and I'm firmly on the side of music venues. Where are we in terms of that, that kind of, uh, well, I'm not going to say revolutionary kind of framework. It seems very much common sense to me, but here on the Gold Coast or, or indeed in Queensland, is there, uh, is there any move towards this kind of way of approaching the problem? I think we're getting there. So this, um, this culture strategy for 2023 and this contemporary music plan that's due to be released this year starts to recognise the nexus on the Gold Coast of creative industries. So we've got a very big film industry that's fired up, right? And there's a link there, a natural link with the music industry doing film scores, that sort of stuff. So this strategy is looking at things like training and education, what kind of education's around in music and music industries, what sort of facilities can we have in terms of shared office space, but also transport systems using the light rail, for example, to move people so the congestion is not such a big issue. Um, having a music officer, some, some of the world leading cities have the music officer who does that kind of coordinating between music venues and the fire people and liquor licensing. And the idea of a venue ladder, so that you've got spaces for all different kinds of music. So I know the Australian industry, for example, is very concerned that they're losing some of these live venues where new and upcoming bands got to find their first audience, right, and got known. So it's, it's I played every... a few of them at the outset. Yeah, exactly, you know? right? And but, we love those spaces. Well, and the commonality there is that these are high-volume, high-energy acts. It's all well and good to create spaces where acoustic performers can gather and, and you know, strum a few tunes, a, a bit of folk this or or folk, surfy folk kind of music yep. but uh, music is a collaborative experience you'd know this is an Irishman mm -hmm. uh, Tony people like to join in people like to make a racket particularly musicians are we are the, are the noise levels as they stand around about the 120 decibel mark or, or whatever the cutoff point is are they too low they, they may well be. Who, I mean, who makes this assessment? Who, who picks a figure out of the air and goes, yep, that's the point where uh, we decide you're either okay or you're not? Environmental health and safety officers usually. Yeah. And mm -hmm. in, in Queensland, there's a uh, entertainment and noise limits and licensing conditions uh, suite of policies and regulations that the Queensland government has through its business and industry portal. And that would be through these kinds of things like environmental health regulators and environmental health officers. But if we get creative, right, we we're talking last week about getting creative. Yeah, yeah. And if we think about adaptively reusing areas that would otherwise be blighted and run down and not attract anything, we can start to co-locate. You can start to build more affordable housing for student accommodation. Students, from what I can tell from my students, and remembering being a student myself, uh, can get by without too much sleep um, <laughs> and love to have live music. And if you bring those kind of synergies together with students and music and affordable housing, you really start to create something that's that's vibrant. And the Gold Coast is edging ever so slowly towards that moment. Why not factor in soundproofing just as a matter of course? I mean, what's the expense attached to blocking sound out? Well, let's give Sam a big plug, right? She, Tony, she was talking to us about a venue in Surfers Paradise elsewhere that had to spend $150,000 on this soundproofing. This is Sam Morris, who's coming up next. Who's coming up next. <laughs> Coincidentally, brand new Gold Coast, new music. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the 120 grand, did you say? Yeah, Tony, have you got any figures there? I don't, have, I, I don't have any figures, but I don't have any um, argument with Matt's point. I don't see why venues that are opening up Fresh shouldn't be required to put in soundproofing uh, to a, a point. Um, I mean, venues are required to have adequate provision of toilets, fire safety, uh, air conditioning, all that sort of stuff. So why noise can't be brought in there or maybe it's already there. I'm not actually sure because it's a building reg issue. But 
uh, I see no reason why that can't be uh, there from the from the outset. Factored in. What about uh, not not necessarily just venues? What about uh, urban developments themselves, residential developments? Why aren't they more attuned to blocking out noise because as a, part of their plans? Because it's expensive and it costs developers more, and uh, purchasers don't necessarily want to pay something they can't see a clear value for. Um, so I would venture that that's one of the major reasons. You know, there's there's a, there's a minimal level of insulation uh, and soundproofing, and then anything above that adds extra cost. Uh, and so in the mind of most developers, and, and I'm only sharing my opinion on this, in the mind of most developers, they'll look at that and say, well, that's extra cost for no little return, or for very little return, and it's not a saleable thing. Okay. But we do it for airports, though, right? So airports have noise contours around them. I don't see why we couldn't take a similar approach to music venues. And if you're within a certain boundary of the airport, if residential residential areas are allowed, they have to provide that kind of buffering, you know, double glazing on windows yes. and soundproofing and this kind of stuff. That sort Why of not thing. for music industries? Yeah. Um, the party house law that's just been passed earlier this year, the temporary local planning instrument number two, has begun to address some of these things as well. But they've got a designation in Surfers Paradise where party houses are allowed and then they're beginning to manage things like noise, traffic, litter, offensive behaviour, this kind of stuff through a kind of management approach. Why not Why not take a similar sensible approach to music venues? Everybody deserves to rock. Absolutely. So <laughs> it's, 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 it's a civic duty. You, you might remember we were talking about health a little while ago. Yes. There's been some studies done that suggest that young people are better adjusted and have lower levels of depression and anxiety when they can enjoy live music, right? And actually, so there's a link. thank you for mentioning that because this is a point that I, I'm very passionate about. You cannot have a music city or any city that claims to have a good live music environment unless you have all ages, gigs and venues. All ages. Yeah, because you know what? A lot of music fans are under 18. Yeah, yeah, which well, that brings us to the festival thing and creating these music hubs, perhaps, on the Gold Coast. Maybe that is the way forward for this city, given the spaces that we have. I think so. And, you know, part of part of the issue here, and we, we seldom talk about this, is the kind of culture around alcohol. So a, a lot of studies have been done recently suggesting that people preload before they go out to music venues, and that's where this violence and bad behaviour comes from. We've responded through things like lockout laws, punishing the venue rather than trying to change the culture of drinking. Apparently up to 75% of people preload and get stuck into the booth before they go out. 75%. Right. Yes. Some work to be done in this space, gentlemen. Our Urban Squeeze uh, panel for another week. Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr Tony Matthews. Rock on, Rock Brothers. (laughs) Bring on the zap. (laughs) 